Sit back. What NFC East quarterback? Relax. In the movie Ocean's Eleven. Put on your think cap. What prized possession did Danny Ocean get ready for the show? In chemistry, what is the name of the principal? And here's your host. During what year was the Marvel Cinematic Universe? Kevin. How's it going, everybody? Welcome to Think Cap. My name is Kevin, and it is my pleasure to be your host. For those of you tuning in for the first time, let me go over how this podcast is structured. At the beginning of the show, I will pose a couple of trivia questions to you and give you a few moments to think of your answers. Then, I will go through each question one by one and give you the answer and the history or data or even just some fun facts behind the answer. So this isn't your standard trivia outfit that just gives you a question and an answer. I will give you a brief breakdown that will hopefully keep you entertained while also teaching you a little bit along the way. My hope is that by listening to ThinkCap, you will be able to gain knowledge about not just a single question, but about details surrounding that question. I consider myself a general trivia show, so you might get some sports, you might get some movies, you might get some history, you might get a historical moment in sports. You never know what you're going to get. So if you're a fan of my show or if you enjoy what you're about to hear, I would ask that you would please recommend the podcast to a friend or a fellow trivia lover. Getting the word out there about ThinkCap really helps my ability to grow and produce more and more content for you guys. Um, To keep up with what I do put out, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook with the same name. Uh, I post fun facts and historical events and there may even be another merch giveaway in the coming weeks, so be on the lookout for that. And with that said, let me once again welcome you to ThinkCap Trivia, and let's get this show started. So once again, I've got a couple different questions for you today. What I'm going to do is read each question for you, give you a couple moments to think about each one, and then go back and break down each question one by one. So sit back and relax, and let me read these questions for you. All right, so question number one, I actually mentioned at the end of last week's podcast that we are going to start doing fan-submitted questions for the first question. So uh, question number one came from a fan, and the question is, what is the rarest defensive feat that one can achieve in a baseball game? Once again, what is the rarest defensive feat that one can achieve in a baseball game? Question number two, what is the only animal on earth that has the ability to consistently fly backwards? Once again, what is the only animal on earth that has the ability to consistently fly backwards? Question number three, what school's football team was the first to feature a two-colored wing design on their helmets in 1930? Once again, what school's football team was the first to feature a two-colored winged design on their helmets in 1930? Question number four. What time on what day are new states officially added to the U.S. flag? Once again, what day and what time are new states officially added to the United States flag? Question number five, what Native American tribe 
aided the United States in World War II by communicating secret plans in their own language, which could not be translated by enemies. Once again, what Native American tribe aided the U.S. in World War II by communicating secret plans in their own language, which could not be translated by enemies? Question number six. When typing on a keyboard, your pointer fingers are supposed to come to rest on what two keys? Once again, don't cheat. When typing on a keyboard, your pointer fingers are supposed to come to rest on what two keys? Question number seven, released in 1962, what was the name of the Beach Boys' first studio album? Once again, released in 1962, what was the name of the Beach Boys' first studio album? Question number eight, what famous brand of gum was the first company to ever implement barcodes on their products in 1974? Once again, what famous brand of gum was the first company to ever implement barcodes on their products in 1974? Question number nine, what is made at St. James Gate in Dublin, Ireland? Once again, what is made at St. James Gate in Dublin, Ireland? And question number 10, the band OK Go became famous for a viral music video for their song Here It Goes Again in which the band danced on what? Once again, the band OK Go became famous for a viral music video for their song Here It Goes Again in which the band danced on what? All right, so now that you've had a moment to think about the answers, there are 10 questions in this week's episode. I'm going to go through, give you a brief breakdown and a little bit of analysis behind each answer. Starting back with question number one, which was what is the rarest defensive feat that one can achieve in a baseball game? And your correct answer is the unassisted triple play. An unassisted triple play occurs when a defensive player makes all three outs by himself in one continuous play without his teammates making any assists. Believe it or not, this feat is rarer than the legendary perfect game. A perfect game is defined as a no-hitter in which no opposing player reaches first base either by a base hit, a walk, a hit batter, or a fielding error. So a perfect game is when the pitcher faces and retires all 27 opposing batters in order. Over the 150 years of Major League Baseball history, over 218,000 games played, there have been 23 official perfect games with no pitcher himself ever throwing more than one perfect game in a career. Now, that's amazing in its own right, but in that same span, there have only ever been 15 recorded unassisted triple plays, making it even more rare than a perfectly pitched game. For it to be possible, there must be no outs in the inning and at least two runners on base. Typically, this happens when base runners on first and second base 
go, either as a double steal or with an early jump on the hit. The unassisted triple play is possible when the hit is a hard line drive hit directly at usually the shortstop or the second baseman, and that player will catch the ball for the first out before tagging second base and tagging the runner who had advanced towards second base as the second and third outs. In this manner, the hitter and both base runners would be out, all at the hands of a single unassisted man. Neil Ball was the first to achieve this in the MLB under modern rules, doing so in 1909, and the most recent unassisted triple play occurred on August 23rd, 2009 when Eric Bruntlett of the Philadelphia Phillies dispatched three New York Mets all by himself in the ninth inning of the ballgame. Alright, question number two was, what is the only animal on earth that has the ability to consistently fly backwards? And your correct answer is the hummingbird. Hummingbird is the right answer. These tiny birds are native to the Americas and they get their name because of the humming sound created by their beating wings, which flap at high frequencies, which become audible to humans. They flap their wings so fast that our eyes sometimes cannot even pick up the wings movement, making the birds appear as if they are simply hovering in mid-air. It's actually really cool if you ever see a hummingbird in real life. They're pretty, pretty neat little animals. Um, Speaking of how little they are, they're some of the smallest birds on the planet, ranging in size from the smallest species of hummingbird at 5 centimeters in length, being the bee hummingbird, to the largest hummingbird species, which is still just 23 centimeters in length, aptly named, relative, the giant hummingbird. Uh, The design of hummingbirds' wings differs from that of most other types of birds. The shape of their wings are long and narrow and tapered, which allow them to move more quickly and easily through the air, creating the humming effect and the hovering effect, which I just previously mentioned. Their shoulders contain a unique ball and socket joint that allows the bird to rotate its wings a full 180 degrees in every direction. Because of how close their shoulder and elbow joints are anatomically to their bodies, their wings can tilt and pivot in ways that other birds cannot achieve, and this is the reason that they are able to fly backwards while other birds cannot. Question number three was what school's football team was the first to feature a two-colored winged design on their helmets in 1930? And your correct answer, Michigan fans turn away, it's The Ohio State University was the first to feature the two-colored wing design on their helmets. Sorry, Michigan fans. Uh, Early football helmets were simply made of panels of leather that were bound together to form the helmet. On September 11, 1930, Ohio State coach Sam Williman had the team don new uniforms which featured two-tone leather helmets where there was a wing in the front in a lighter color than the rest of the lid. They would wear these helmets for four years until the 1935 season. And there's some debate to it, but in reality, no one really invented the winged design as it was simply a stock item in Spaulding's catalog at the time. Several other universities used the design in those early years, including Indiana, Georgetown, and sorry again, Michigan fans, but Michigan State was another one of the teams to wear the winged helmet. Coach Herbert Fritz Chrysler is 
typically credited with making the winged helmets popular, as he had his Princeton Tigers helmets painted black with orange wings and three stripes down the middle, much like today's design. Coach Chrysler believed that the contrasting colors on the helmet gave his team an advantage as it added visibility to his team's players to help his quarterback see the receivers downfield. When he left Princeton to become the head coach at the University of Michigan in 1938, Princeton dropped the wing design, but Coach would implement the now iconic blue leather helmets with a maize-colored wing and three stripes running from the front to the back at his new university. When the sport moved on from leather helmets to plastic ones, Michigan decided to paint the same stripes on their new helmets and have retained the exact same look ever since, making most people think of the Wolverines when they see the winged look on the field. Today, there are only three Division I schools where the winged helmets are worn. Michigan, who has never stopped wearing them and arguably is the most iconic winged helmet in the world, Princeton, who brought back their orange wings in their 1998 season after not wearing them for about 60 years, and the University of Delaware, who has worn the wing design ever since the 1951 season, when former Michigan player David M. Nelson became the head coach of the Fightin' Blue Hens. But yeah, well, Michigan is known for their famous winged helmets, I guess if you're an Ohio State fan, you can feel free to rib your Michigan buddies for more than just the fact that they haven't beaten you since 2011 and tell them that your team was in fact the first to don their favorite helmet design. Question number four, what time and on what day are new states officially added to the United States flag? And your correct answer is noon on July 4th. Noon on July 4th is when the new flag would be added to the Union. The Constitution went into effect on June 21st, 1788 after ratification by nine of the 13 states. The federal government began to operate under it on March 4th 1789. The process necessary for a region to become a state is addressed in Article 4, Section 3 of the Constitution. When the people of a certain territory would like to become a state, they can vote on a referendum and then they make a bid for their statehood known to the federal government. In most cases, Congress would pass an enabling act which authorizes the people of that territory to draft a proposed state constitution which is a necessary step towards statehood. One key thing to note is that states cannot be formed within the jurisdiction of current states by combining two or more states or parts of states without the consent of the legislatures of that state or states and Congress. The states will go through a process that I won't detail entirely, but in the end they are admitted to the Union once their proposal reaches a majority vote in Congress. Once admitted to the United States, the country's flag must be altered as the stars in the upper left-hand corner represent one for each state. Since the founding of the United States, there have been 27 different versions of the flag used. The current iteration has been used the longest with the 48-starred flag that was used between 1912 and 1959 being used for the second longest amount of time. It is also worth noting that the U.S. Army Institute of Heraldry states that an official United States flag will never be obsolete. This means that any past iteration may be displayed until it is no longer serviceable. 
And there are a couple of areas looking at the possibility of statehood right now. Those two regions being Puerto Rico for one and Washington DC as the other. Both um, have thrown the idea out there of becoming states. And I mean, right now it's kind of nice being able to say that we have 50 states. It's a nice even number. But I looked up a couple designs of what the, st the flag would look like if we had a 51st state, and it's really not all that different. So for anybody worried about their uh, beautiful United States flag having an odd number of stars up there, it'll be fine if that were to happen and we were to add another state to the Union at some time in the future. And that brings us to question number five, which was what Native American tribe aided the United States in World War II by communicating secret plans in their own language, which could not be translated by enemies. And those people were the Navajos. Navajos are the right answer. Early in World War II, the enemies of the United States were breaking every code that the United States military attempted to use to transmit information in the Pacific. Then, in 1942, Philip Johnson had the idea to use the Navajo people as code talkers. He was a World War I veteran and the son of a missionary who lived on Navajo land, so he was familiar with the people and their culture. Because of his experience with the native people, he was also aware that their language was all but unknown to other tribes and to the general public. After successful test runs by four Navajo speakers at Camp Elliott in San Diego, on March 6, 1942, Major General Clayton B. Vogel issued a letter which supported an effort to recruit approximately 200 Navajo men to join the U.S. Marines. 29 Navajo men joined the Marine Corps at first, but these men created an unbreakable code that helped the United States succeed in encrypting and decrypting important messages on the front lines. On August 7, 1942, the Marines hit the beaches of Guadalcanal with 15 of the code talkers and their system worked to perfection. That was the first time that they were used in practice and once their code was proven successful, it is estimated that over 400 Navajo men ended up serving during World War II. The code comprised of words selected from the Navajo language and those words were then applied to military phrases. By the end of the war, there were 411 terms used by the code talkers. And along with their code terms, the Navajo code talkers also developed an alphabet system that used Navajo words, which when translated to English, would spell out one of the 26 letters of the alphabet. By the end of the war, they had expanded this system to 44 words in order to disguise some of the more frequently used letters. And you can see with how off the wall their language was compared to other languages to begin with, and the fact that they disguised some of the codes even further than their than they would appear on the surface, it was nearly impossible to break the codes that these guys came up with. It was pretty fascinating. Um, today, only four of the original code talkers are alive, none of whom were a part of the initial group of 29 men to join the country's cause. And they received no honors until their operation was declassified in 1968, but now they are known as one of the most integral parts of the United States' success in World War II. And question number six was, when typing on a keyboard, your pointer fingers are supposed to come to rest on what two keys? And your correct answer, 
your left hand pointer should be on F and your right on J. F and J are the right answers. If you've ever taken a course on how to properly type for speed and efficiency, you learn that the keyboard is essentially divided into two equal halves with your left hand taking care of one side and your right hand taking care of the other. Your hands should always come to rest in the same positions to minimize the movement of your hands and fingers. If you notice, the F and J keys typically have tiny raised portions on them. This little bump is there so that your fingers will subconsciously recognize where they are on the keyboard based on the tactile feel of the raised feature. This allows you to return to these keys much faster than if all the keys were exactly the same and smooth. What we know today as the standard keyboard was based on a layout created for the Scholes and Glidden typewriter and sold to the E. Remington and Sons company in 1873. It became popular with the success of the Remington No. 2 in 1878 and remains as the most popular typing configuration in the world. If you've ever heard the term QWERTY, this is the common name for a keyboard as the top left letters of the keyboard are Q-W-E-R-T-Y, or if you put them together, the false word QWERTY. There's speculation out there that this configuration was designed to slow down typists by putting commonly used letters further apart from each other in hopes that the typewriter would not jam because of a person typing too fast. However, this theory is historically debated, so I would consider it unsubstantiated at this time, but even if that was the in initial uh, purpose of the QWERTY keyboard, I'd say humans are pretty good at developing over time because since its inception in the late 1800s, there are many people who can type very, very, very fast using the QWERTY keyboard, partially because they put their fingers on F and J. All right, question number seven. This is gonna be a quick one. Released in 1962, what was the name of the Beach Boys' first studio album? And your correct answer, that album was entitled Surfin' Safari. Surfin' Safari is the right answer. That album was the group's debut album, which was released on October 1st of 1962. Surfin' Safari made it onto the top US charts and it stayed there for 37 weeks, but it only peaked at number 32. However, the band's lead single, Surfin', was credited with creating the California sound genre, which, I mean, if you listen to the Beach Boys, they definitely have that California beachy vibe to them. That's the entire essence of who they are. But the California sound genre is characterized as being a pop or rock song in nature that is also aesthetically pleasing and thematically revolves around surfing and 60s hot rod culture and youthful innocence. That whole vibe, I mean, if you again, if you've listened to the Beach Boys, you kind of know what, what that genre would be. And while this album is not their most popular or their most renowned, it certainly set the tone for what the group would go on to accomplish. The Beach Boys would become one of the most successful commercial bands of all time, selling over 100 million records worldwide. They have had over 80 songs reach the charts worldwide, with 36 of them in the US Top 40 and 4 reaching the top of the Billboard Hot 100. And question number 8 was, what famous brand of gum was the first company to ever implement barcodes on their products in 1974? And your correct answer is Wrigley. 
Wrigley gum is the right answer. The invention of barcodes themselves came about as grocers looked for a more standardized way for storing pricing and other information about their products. A distraught grocer approached Drexel Institute of Technology's dean and implored him to come up with a way to help shoppers get through his store more quickly as delays in stock taking were reasonably affecting his profits. The dean initially shrugged off the plea, but Bob Silver overheard the discussion and brought it up to his other friend, Joe Woodland, who was an inventor. Woodland decided to take on the challenge to come up with an ingenious way to accomplish the goal of getting shoppers through the store more quickly, and he left graduate school to move to Miami to focus solely on this endeavor. Woodland had an epiphany when he was on the beach of Miami. He said, quote, I remember I was thinking about dots and dashes when I poked my four fingers into the sand and, for whatever reason, I pulled my hand toward me and I had four lines. I said, golly, now I have four lines and they could be wide lines or narrow lines instead of dots and dashes. Now I have a better chance of finding the doggone thing. Then, only seconds later, I took my four fingers, they were still in the sand, and I swept them round into a circle. His original idea for the barcode was to have it to be a circular shape, but the printing press would smear as the paper left the printing stations, leaving the code unreadable. That's why they didn't go with this design. Instead, the concept to use a single strip with vertical lines was developed. Woodland and Silver filed for their first patent in 1949, and they were granted it in 1952. Now, if you're familiar with a barcode, which I'm sure you are, there is a laser component to it that reads the barcode, and their laser system was a bit ahead of its time. It was about the size of a desk and only worked to a point, but the technology was fascinating in its own right, with some headlines describing future iterations as saying that they had developed a science fiction death ray. <laughs> now, over the next 20 plus years, the technology would become developed and refined until it was at a point where it was ready to be used commercially. The first purchase using the new technology was a 10 pack of Wrigley's Juicy Fruit Gum at 8.01 a.m. on the morning of June 26, 1974. This item was chosen because during development, nobody was sure that a barcode could be printed on something as small as a stick of gum, but Wrigley as a company actually came up with a good solution to make that happen. So like I said, they would become the first to have a barcode on their product and the first to be checked out in a store using that new technology. Today, the simplicity and ingenuity of barcode technology continues to shape the way that we log products as QR codes, serial numbers, VIN numbers, and more use similar technology to keep all this data organized. I think one of the coolest applications nowadays is if you've gone to any restaurants now during the uh, COVID year of 2020, a lot of restaurants have gone away from paper menus, instead having a QR code posted on the table where you use your smartphone to scan a picture of the QR code and you get a digital menu right there on your phone. I think that's a pretty neat way of applying this technology and it really all goes back to what Mr. Woodland thought of on the beach all those years ago in Miami. And that brings us to question number nine, which was, what is made at St. James Gate in Dublin, Ireland? And your correct answer is Guinness beer is made at St. James Gate. 
1759, a man named Arthur Guinness signed a 9,000-year lease for the St. James Gate Brewery in Dublin, Ireland. Being four acres in size and having little brewing equipment, the lease was signed for an annual cost of 45 euros, or about $51 per year in US dollars today. After brewing ale at his brewery for a couple of years, in 1770, Guinness began brewing a newer type of English beer called Porter. Porter-style beer was invented in 1722 by a brewer named Ralph Harwood. Porter is a darker beer because it is brewed using roasted barley, which transfers a darker color and richer aroma to the beverage. The new beer was so successful that the company decided to stop brewing ales altogether in 1799 and focus completely on continuing to master their porter. The company would continue to grow and make a presence in the global market with Arthur Guinness having different styles of porters brewed to suit different international taste palettes. For example, he created a West India porter which is popular in Asia, Africa, and the Caribbean, specifically for these locations. The beer is still sold today, now known as the Foreign Extra Stout, and it accounts for 45% of all of Guinness's global sales. By the end of the 20th century, Guinness had expanded to brewing in 49 countries and selling product in over 150. The brewery at St. James Gate was fully automated in 1996, and became the first in the world to be accredited with ISO 14001 standard, which is the International Environmental Management Standard. Brewhouse 4, a new state-of-the-art brewery at St. James Gate, was opened in 2014. It is also completely automated and is one of the most technologically advanced breweries in the entire world. It is the largest stout brewery in the world, consuming over 100,000 tons of Irish barley every year. Today, Guinness estimates that over 10 million glasses of their signature drink are enjoyed throughout the world every single day. Alright, question number 10, which is our last question for this week. The question was, the band OK Go became famous for a viral music video for their song Here It Goes Again, in which the band danced on what? And your correct answer is treadmills. They were dancing on treadmills. The band's music video for Here It Goes Again was released in late 2006 and was one of the first true viral videos shared on YouTube, which only started as a video sharing platform in early 2005. Back in the early days of YouTube, it was much more Wild West-like, with people just creating random videos just for the fun of it and putting them out there, and stuff just kind of happened. And sometimes when those things were extra special or extra funny, they were shared and watched by tons of people very quickly, a trend which we now know as going viral. These days there are apps like TikTok specifically designed for content to be labeled and created as a viral video, and companies try to push out content for this specific purpose to get their brand on as many eyes as possible. If you ask me, the term has kind of changed over time, as something being viral now does not mean that everyone you know will have seen it or is talking about it, but OK Go's video was truly one of those videos that almost everyone in 2006 and 2007 can recall watching at some point. The band never really intended to become the internet famous viral video band, but rather just kind of started performing ridiculous dances with their songs because of their love of creating unique things, as most artists have. 
When they created their first ever song called Cinnamon Lips, they had the opportunity to perform it at a Chicago public access theater, but the show didn't have the capacity for a live performance, so they were forced to lip sync. Instead of just pretending to perform their song, they decided to go all in and create an entire choreographed boy band style dance, which is out there on YouTube now and it's actually pretty entertaining in its own right. But from there, the band released a self-titled album and performed it at several different venues. Now they had so much fun with their original lip sync performance that they decided they wanted to end all of their shows with another crazy choreographed dance. Their intention here was to get all the cool people who were just shuffling their feet to get happy and have some fun. So the song they chose to dance to was called A Million Ways, and they decided to make a video of themselves practicing in order to beat out a young Chicago rapper by the name of Kanye West. Now, now this is kind of a weird point in the story as they had a friend who worked with Michelle Gondry who had this idea for a huge choreographed dance music video for the upstart young rapper named Kanye West. So they decided, no, we're, we are the choreographed dance band, and they wanted to get Mr. Gondry's attention. So the band said to themselves, hey, we should record a video of our end of the show dance and send it to Gondry to get the screenwriter's attention. So they did that, and a friend of theirs uploaded the video to a streaming service called iFilm, and it got hundreds of thousands of downloads. So the band said to themselves again, hey, if we can get that viewership by accident, which, by the way, was way more attention than any of their albums got and then some, they said, we should try to do it on purpose. So they came up with an idea to do a dance on treadmills. They bought eight of them, and then they locked themselves in a house for 10 whole days in a row to get it finished. They purposely wanted the video to not look like it was some sort of high-budget fiasco, because it wasn't, elected to hang a simple tarp in the background for the exact reason that it didn't look good. They wanted it to look as crude as possible, because that kind of described who they were as a band. They didn't want their label to even know what they were cooking up, so when their label received it, uh, they decided, they were shocked obviously, they thought it was great. They decided to post it to a video site called stupidvideos.com, which the band did not love. They told them to take it down and post it to the then up and coming video site called YouTube, expecting to get about 300,000 views much like their last one did on iFilm. Instead, the video got 900,000 views in its first day on YouTube. Their popularity exploded, and they performed the routine at the MTV Music Video Awards, and even won a Grammy for Best Short Form Music Video in 2007 for their dance on the treadmills. They now are pretty much known for their crazy music videos, as they continue just to have fun and be ridiculous with all of their ventures. They have one called Upside Down and Inside Out, in which they used a zero-gravity airplane, and they have kind of they're dancing, flipping off the walls, there are balls flying all around, it's really cool, super trippy. I definitely recommend watching that one if you have a chance. Um, but anyway, I've probably gone on for this one long enough, so I think now it's time to wrap up this week's episode. If you have made it this far, I thank you for hanging out with me, and I hope that you learned a little bit. If you enjoyed the show, um, if it would be great if you could review, like, subscribe, follow if you can. 
on whatever streaming platform you choose to listen to. Any feedback from you guys is huge uh, in taking this podcast to the next level. Also, like I said before, you can follow ThinkCap at T-H-I-N-K-K-A-P on Instagram or follow on Facebook to keep up with links for when new episodes come out and other fun content that I post throughout the weeks. And finally, as I mentioned at the beginning of the podcast, I really love to hear what you guys want to learn. Um, The last couple of weeks, I've been doing fan-submitted questions to lead off each episode, and I would love to keep doing that. So if you guys ever have any fun trivia facts you want um, discussed on ThinkCap, or if you want any questions pertaining to a certain topic, please leave that in your feedback, or you can comment on any of ThinkCap's social media posts or send ThinkCap a direct message, however you do that. Um, you might be able to get your question or your idea discussed on the next ThinkCap podcast. So uh, once again, I want to thank you for listening. I will catch you next week and take care. Here it goes, here it goes.